Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. At the end of this message, I will have some personal comments as to why uh, this message is presented today. But to start with, we're just going to get into it. Is there a command in the New Testament that Christians do not need to obey? What do you think? For one year of my grade school education, my family lived in the little town of Galeen, Michigan. This town is not that far from the south side of Chicago. A day came when for a school field trip, we traveled to the south side of Chicago to visit the famous Museum of Science and Industry. It was an absolutely wonderful place and for me the favorite place I ever went on a school field trip. However, something happened at the museum that came close to spoiling my day. I was standing in line to see a special exhibit. It was a crowded situation with many people pressing in close to one another. Next to me was a lady with a purse. I was not very tall at the time, so her purse was at my eye level. I looked over and noticed the clasp on her purse was open. It looked to me like some things might fall out of her purse. I was worried about this. At the time, I was rather shy. Therefore, rather than immediately speaking to her, I tried to work up the courage to get her attention so I could tell her she needed to close her purse. Well, as I was doing this, the woman looked down at me and noticed my eyes on her purse. Then she noticed her purse was open. She raised her eyebrows and in a scornful tone said, Quite a temptation, isn't it? (laughs) Then she reached down quickly and triumphantly snapped her purse shut as if she had stopped me from doing a dirty deed. She thought I was planning on stealing from her. I still remember the confused and hurt feeling that came over me. I wasn't going to steal from her. I wanted to help her. I was going to warn her. I was a little boy who wanted to do a good deed, but she judged me a thief. On that day, the woman did me wrong. She wounded the spirit of a child by drawing a wrong conclusion and stating it with a voice of condemnation. It is something ever so easy to do. And not just to children, but to any person at any time. It may be the most common way human beings do damage to other human beings. It happens when a person has a wrong idea or wrong opinion about someone and speaks out and or acts upon that wrong idea or opinion. This is why our Lord Jesus Christ said, judge not that you be not judged. He was teaching us to refrain from sinful activity, and he was giving us instruction to protect us as human beings from ourselves. Time to consider three profound truths from Matthew 7, verses 1 through 6. The first is this. People are judged for how they judge. Matthew 7, 1 is an extraordinary verse. It is one of the most well-known verses in the Bible. Even people who do not read the Bible, who do not believe the Bible, know Jesus Christ said, Judge not that you be not judged. 
And those who have read and do believe the Bible have a very strong awareness of this verse and tend to think this is the verse in the Bible that they do not need to obey. Remember, I asked the question, is there a verse in the New Testament we do not have to obey? There are many who behave as if this is the verse. They know our Lord said do not judge, but they also feel free to go ahead and judge. I do not know if I have ever heard a sermon or lesson on Matthew 7, 1 that did not begin with telling people how they can judge, even though the verse says not to judge. If you look up Matthew 7, 1 in commentaries, you find nearly every commentator saying, although this verse says do not judge, we know there are many areas wherein we must judge. Not long ago, I heard a preacher deal with this text in the first major point of his sermon. He had three points, and point number one is why we can judge and why we should judge, even though the verse says not to judge. My question is, why did Jesus Christ so forcefully say judge not if he didn't mean it or if he wanted us to minimalize or marginalize this admonition? Here's the problem. For reasons I do not understand, this verse almost always receives improper emphasis. Did our Lord Jesus Christ really say judge not or did he say something else? Listen to the verse as found in the New International Version of the New Testament. It reads, do not judge or you too will be judged. Did you notice the word or in that reading? Here's how we find it in the English Standard Version. Judge not that you be not judged. Did you notice the word that in that reading? The old King James says, judge not that you be not judged. Again, I ask you, do you see that word that? It means there is a connection here that must be respected. In the New American Standard Version, the Bible says, do not judge so that you will not be judged. Once again, we need to notice the full reading. Do we see those words, so that? So what we're seeing here in these translations is the words judge not, do not stand alone. The command is not judge not. The command is judge not so that you will not be judged. It is not a two-word command. It is a nine- or ten-word command. There is cause and effect. It is one challenge with two parts. There's rule and there's reason. In other words, you could turn the statement around to say, if you don't mind being judged, judge. You will be judged for how you judge, so you decide if you're going to judge. That's the wording. Sort of like saying, don't eat all that candy or you'll get a stomachache. That's a little different. If you say, don't eat that candy, well, that's that's it. I mean, there's, there's no choice. Don't eat that candy. But if you say, don't eat that candy or you'll get a stomachache, essentially you're saying you've got a choice here. I mean, you can eat the candy if you choose to, but you're going to get the stomach ache that comes with it. You choose the candy, you choose the consequence. You decide what you want. Well, Matthew 7, 1 is not quite as simple as the candy illustration, but the easiest way to understand the verse is to see and not separate the command from the consequence. This is not a command to never, ever, ever judge. It is a command to only judge when we are willing to bear full responsibility for whatever judgment we make and be held entirely accountable for the judgment we make. Do we want that? Do we want to be judged for how we judge? 
Many years ago, one of my daughters was, when she was still a teenager, she entered a beauty pageant. This introduced me to the world of beauty pageants. And one of the things I quickly discovered is people who sit in the audience of beauty contest often do not understand the decisions made by the judges of the contest. There are times that almost no one seems to understand the decision made by the pageant judges. The person crowned as winner is an unexpected choice, especially if it's not my daughter. <laughs> and everyone wonders, why did they choose that lady when all of us liked the other one? Nevertheless, the crowd must accept the decision the judges make. Even when a decision is confusing and flat out seems wrong, there's no place for raising objection to the decision. And in the normal course of human affairs, this may be the way it often goes. Judges are not always judged for how they judge. However, Matthew 7, 1 is telling us, in terms of God's dealing with human affairs, all who judge are judged. When we understand this, it will make us extremely careful, even wary, of passing judgment. We'll avoid doing so whenever we can. We'll become the kind of people who will not judge unless there is absolutely no other choice but to judge. Then if we must judge, we will only do so with powerful awareness that God himself holds us accountable for whatever judgment we make. This is the kind of people our Lord Jesus Christ wants us to be. This is the reason for Matthew 7.1. We are to be those who resist making judgment. Those who withdraw from making judgment whenever possible. And if we must make judgment, It is only done with extreme care, caution, and consideration. I remember when I was a young man in ministry trying to teach the truth of Matthew 7.1 and having an older lady in a congregation point me to Matthew 7.16 where the Bible says you will know them by their fruits. With a chuckle, the lady said, okay, not supposed to be judges, but we could all be fruit inspectors. (laughs) She chuckled away as she had just proven we all have the freedom to judge, even though Matthew 7, 1 says not to. Well, the lady was right that we are to evaluate people on the basis of their fruit. We are to pay attention to the activity and character of others, and occasions come when we must draw conclusions based on what we see. That's true. I I understand that. But listen to me. The woman was wrong to laugh off Matthew 7, 1. She was wrong to treat the verse if it is some, as if it is something to be fundamentally disregarded. It is not a verse to be smugly passed off. Many years later, I was teaching a, an adult Bible school class or Sunday school class in a little church in Montana. When we came to the first verses of Matthew chapter 7, I tried to teach from the positive viewpoint. I thought I would do something a little bit different. Instead of discussing what the verse does not mean, I thought I would talk about what it does mean. Solely focus on the command not to judge. Therefore, I did not spend the first third of the lesson explaining why, even though the verse says not to judge, we should judge anyway. I skipped right over that and went directly to God's desire for us not to be judgmental people. My approach did not work. Normally, after class, people express appreciation for the teaching. (laughs) On this occasion, only one man had something to say. 
He had spent time on the mission field. He was a former pastor. He said, Dwayne, you really need to teach on this verse again next week, and we should spend the whole class looking at when and where it's important for Christians to judge. He really said it. And like the woman with her fruit inspector comment, he was right. The Christians need to make judgment. He was right. The Bible does teach there are times and places where we must judge. But he too totally missed the point. We're not to treat the words of our Lord and Savior in Matthew 7, 1 as if they are only of minor importance. We're not to be, listen, this is so important. We're not to be more excited about how we can judge than we are concerned to possess the caution and reluctance we should possess if we have to judge. The teaching of Matthew 7, 1 is, if and when we do this thing called judging, we had better get it right. We must not be those who make up our minds before the facts are in. We must not be those who are overconfident of our ability to know what other people are feeling or thinking. I came across this saying. Someone said, the only exercise some people ever get is jumping to conclusions, running down other people, sidestepping responsibility, and pushing their luck. Christians are not to be such people. Now, if you're questioning how I've interpreted Matthew 7, 1 so far, look at Matthew 7, 2. It's its own commentary on Matthew 7, 1. It doubly emphasizes the challenge. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. If you're going to go ahead and judge, and there will be times when we must, we must do so with stark understanding that how we judge is how we're judged. And we will be judged for how we judge. And if someone is the kind of person who always has an opinion and always feels a need to express that opinion about other people, to let other people know his or her judgments... I would say that person might want to think twice, more than twice, about continuing to be such a person. This brings us to a second profound truth. Judgment must start with ourselves. Here are some definitions of an egotistical man. Number one, every time he opens his mouth, he puts his feet in. Number two, he is easily entertained. All he has to do is listen to himself talk. Number three, he's a self-made man who insists on giving everyone the recipe. Number four, every time he looks in a mirror, he takes a bow. Number five, you could make a fortune off of him if you could buy him for what you think of him and then sell him for what he thinks of himself. (laughs) Well, there's such a thing as spiritual egotism. And one of the signs of being a spiritual egotist is seeing everyone's faults and flaws but your own. And added to that is the characteristic of believing, since you can see the faults and flaws of others, you then must be a person with great spiritual understanding. There is a tendency, a huge tendency, for self-righteous people to see their recognition of the sins of others as indication they must not have such sins themselves. And this is a wrong way to think. This is another issue the text before us is addressing. Look at the words of Matthew 7, verses 3 and 4. Our Lord Jesus Christ says, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? 
And how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? Now, many think this is a use of humor to emphasize a point of teaching. It's like the old story about a man who walked into a psychiatrist's office with a pancake on his head, fried eggs on each shoulder, and a strip of bacon around each ear. The psychiatrist, humoring him, said, what seems to be the problem? And the man said, well, I'm here to talk to you about my brother. Now, that's a really bad joke. But it makes the point, if you've got a pancake on your head and bacon hanging around your ears, you should be worried about yourself, not your brother. Okay, I'll try that joke next service. Hopefully we have a more appreciative crowd. Well, this is the kind of word picture Jesus Christ has created in this text. So imagine a man with a two-by-four sticking out of his eye. He goes up to another man and says, I see you have a small speck of wood in your eye. Let me help you with that. Ridiculous. If you can't take care of a two-by-four sticking out of your own eye, why are you worried about somebody else's speck? And beyond that, if you do have a two-by-four sticking out of your eye, you probably can't see the speck in somebody else's eye anyway. Look at the words of Matthew 7, 5. You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. With this, our Lord is making it clear to us that as human beings, we have this weakness. We see the faults and flaws of others easily, or at least we think we do, while having a hard time seeing our own faults. And this is a key reason why we must be so cautious in this matter of judging. When somebody else does something wrong, we instantly react and we have a strong opinion right away. But when we do something wrong, we may not notice it at all, or if we do notice it, we pass it off with a thought, well, I didn't really mean that the way it sounded. You know, I'm just having a rough day. I'm not really that kind of person. We excuse ourselves. We justify ourselves. We give ourselves slack that we do not give others. And the opposite should be true. We should be more concerned about our own weaknesses and our own tendencies to do wrong than we are about those of anyone else. And by the way, as a quick comment, now and then you would run into somebody who would say, well, this says judge, you know, we'll be judged for how we judge, but I can handle that because I'm sure I'm right. Go back and read these verses 3 through 5 again. If you're the kind of person who's sure you're right, you're the kind of person who probably is as much wrong as anybody around. In 1 Corinthians eleven thirty one, the Apostle Paul said, For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. And the meaning is, if we deal with our own faults, then we wouldn't be held accountable for them. And the reason is, we'd make the changes we need to make. We'd get things right that need to be made right. And by doing so, we would avoid the consequences which otherwise come our way. To the people who are so deeply concerned to retain the right to judge. This text is saying, then judge yourself first and judge yourself most. And keep in mind how easy it is to be blind to your own sins while focusing a critical eye on others. And this brings us to the third profound truth from this text. If judgment makes no difference, it's not worth making it known. We're now at verse 6. This, too, is a famous text in the Bible. It, too, is a text often misunderstood and misinterpreted. It says, Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. 
Now, the first thing to know about this verse is the subject is still the challenge to judge not so that you will not be judged. Our Lord has not moved on to a new topic. He's still dealing with how easy it is to make huge mistakes when passing judgment. And one of the big mistakes we make is wasting our breath. We say things that do not make any difference at all, or if they do make a difference, they only make things worse. And if what we say only makes things worse, why say it in the first place? In the Old Testament, the wisdom of Proverbs tells us, this is Proverbs 23, 9, do not speak to fools, for they will scorn your prudent words. That's Proverbs 23, 9. Essentially, the instruction is don't say something if it's not going to do any good to say it. Well, what is Jesus Christ saying here in Matthew 7, 6? Look again at the wording. Don't give dogs what is sacred. Suppose a man throws a New Testament to a pack of dogs. Are they going to read it? Are they going to receive its truth and let it change their lives? Or are they going to chew it up and scatter the pages to the wind? What do you expect? They're dogs. And what about a pig? If somebody threw a string of pearls down in front of a pig, a string of pearls worth a million dollars, what would the pig do? Would it put them on and say, I'm a styling. Wow, I look good in these. I must be careful with these. They are incredibly valuable. No, the pig wouldn't do that. It would just trample them into the dirt. It might get mad because it will figure out you can't eat them. So it would do just like the dogs would shred the New Testament. Now, does this mean pigs are stupid and dogs are bad? No, it's not about pigs and dogs at all. It's about the person who would try to give pearls to a pig in the first place and about that man who would think dogs can read the New Testament. I've known a number of people in my life who seem to be able, unable, I should say, to resist making their opinions known. If they have an opinion, they feel duty-bound to express it. As far as they are concerned, it's a matter of courage and honor to stand up and say what you think, even if nobody in the place cares and even if it doesn't do any good. In light of what we're seeing in Matthew 7, 6, do you think that's the right way to behave? If all pronouncing a judgment is going to do is stir up trouble, make people mad, and change nothing, then what's the point of pronouncing it in the first place? It's like casting pearls to pigs. This is not to discount the courage that takes a stand when taking a stand makes a difference. If someone were to say to us, deny Jesus Christ or die, I hope we would all say, then let me die. Doesn't matter if you appreciate my faith or not. It doesn't matter if you understand my faith or not. I will not deny it. But this is not about that. This is not about being afraid to testify or being timid in the battle for truth. This is about creating animosity that does not need to be created. Look at the last line of verse 6 and turn and tear you to pieces. Why did our Lord add those words to the end of that verse? Why are they there? He was telling us if the only thing you accomplish by announcing your disapproval and your disappointment is the intensification of the scorn and anger that is already there toward you or toward the truths of the kingdom, if that's all you accomplish by saying this thing you want to say, then you'd be better off keeping your mouth shut. As the old saying goes, it's better to build bridges than burn them. Judgmental people burn a lot of bridges and put up a lot of barriers by saying things that don't need to be said, by saying things that don't do any good anyway. So this idea of not giving pearls to pigs is a call for wisdom. 
It's not about us comparing people in the world to pigs. And I think some people who look at this verse think that is what it's about. If you don't agree with me, you're a pig. No, no, no. It's not about pigs and dogs. They're pigs and dogs. They do what they do. This is about people who don't have enough sense but to stop to try, stop trying to give pearls to pigs. And it's about us having sense to speak in a way that makes things better rather than worse. When I was at the end of my teenage years, one of the biggest issues in the American world of Christianity was long hair on men. Anybody remember those days? crazy, isn't it? Nowadays, nobody seems to care. Some of us wish we had more hair. But in those days, churches were splitting over the issue. It was not uncommon for a pastor to preach a sermon titled, Did Jesus Have Long Hair? The conclusion of his sermon would be no, and uh, no, he did not. And if you love the Lord, you wouldn't either. Many believers were deeply concerned about the issue. Well, something accentuating the issue was the fact that it was also a time in our culture when the Jesus people were a strong movement. They were hippies who had given their hearts to Christ. They still had long hair, beards, beads, and sandals. They preferred to play and sing guitars over listening to organs and pianos, but they were sincere in their faith. Numerous stories were told of Jesus people trying to attend a traditional church service. And when they arrived at the door, being told by ushers, if you want to come in here, go get yourself a haircut first. That kind of thing really happened. What good did it do? Apart from who was right and who was wrong about long hair on men, wouldn't it make more sense to let somebody in, even if they have a lifestyle of which you do not approve, in the hopes that during the service they might hear a life-changing message? Wouldn't it be better to find a way to minister to a person rather than to draw a line in the sand and label the person as unacceptable? It would have been much better. Even so, there were people in churches in those days who felt it necessary to voice their conviction about long hair as proof of their courage to say whatever needed to be said. They believed by taking a stand, they were demonstrating their fidelity to Christ. But actually, they were casting pearls to pigs. I'm not saying that Jesus' people were the pigs. They weren't. Again, that's not the concept. The concept is we are foolish if we don't know enough to keep our mouths closed in situations where it doesn't help to open them. The concept is that of proclaiming a judgment which accomplishes nothing good and does more harm than good. The concept is voicing an opinion when doing so does not help anyone. Preparing the sermon, I came across a quotation from a person who wrote to a pastor asking for help. He said, the deepest hurts in my life are from Christians, and the worst part of this is they use God to hurt me. I guess somewhere around 20 years ago, it was popular for preachers to say, do you know what's one of the biggest problems with Christianity today? We shoot our wounded. And by that, they meant there are many churches where if people fail, the people who fail get criticized and condemned rather than helped. Now, in concluding this message, I want to make it clear that the text before us and what you've heard me say is not that Christians can never judge. I think I've stated it plainly. The Bible tells us we need to make judgments now and then. What this text says and what I've sought to convey 
is the matter of making any kind of judgment must be approached with extreme caution and care. We must be absolutely sure we have our facts right. We must be absolutely sure that our conclusions are unquestionably accurate. And then beyond our care and caution in reaching a judgment, we must decide if announcing it and acting upon it will do any good. Even if our judgment is right, and this is the problem. Some people think, well, if I'm right, then I have the right to say it. And what the text is saying is even if you're right, if it doesn't do any good, if it makes things worse rather than better, then why say it? The purpose of judging is to accomplish that which is helpful and good if it must be done. If instead we do damage by the things we say, we violate the teaching of Matthew 7, 1 through 6, and it is a teaching we're not to violate We are judged for how we judge. Yes, we are to obey Matthew 7, 1. Now, before we bow our heads to pray, I'm going to share this, something especially personal. And that is before I arrived at this church this summer, and even before Pastor Mark contacted me about filling in while he would be gone, the Lord placed this message on my heart. I made a note in my little area on my computer to do. Prepare a message on Matthew 7, 1 through 6. And I started thinking about it. I didn't finish preparing the message until this past week, but for many months I've known I needed to preach it. And I've wondered why, especially as I've been here over the last 10 weeks. Because I have not seen a critical spirit in this church. I have not seen problems with judgmental people in this church. So I've tried to understand, why would this be the last message? I mean, we've kind of had fun up until today. (laughs) Well, in pondering it and praying about it, I've reached the conclusion that this is meant to be preventative medicine. You're such a wonderful congregation. So many good things are happening in your church. There's such a sweet spirit here. Mary and I have had such a wonderful time this summer. You don't want to lose this. And one of the quickest ways for Satan to destroy the wonderful things going on in this church would be for judgmental attitudes to come in and take over. So receive this message today as my final message to you for the summer as a challenge to protect your church. This message is not about something I see as wrong. It is about keeping the wrong away. We must guard against a judgmental spirit. And we must understand that guarding against such a thing starts with making sure such a spirit is not in our own hearts and not being expressed through our own lives. Now, will you bow your heads? Let's think about this in a very personal way. The most obvious question is, are you a judgmental person? Are you one of those people who always has an opinion and feels duty-bound to express it no matter what? And maybe you even feel like you're safe doing it because you're right. At least you think you're right. Will you reconsider what you've heard from the text today and realize there may very well be a plank in your own eye and realize that maybe... All this expressing of your opinion is not helping anything. It's only making things worse. But I think more likely, 
It's not that you're a judgmental person, but maybe you've had an issue with somebody lately. You've had some sort of problem with a person or persons. And in your mind, you're ready just to cut loose and let them know what you think. Unload on them. Well, I ask you to ask yourself, will that accomplish any good? Will it make things better? Or will it just be you venting your frustrations? We're not to do damage. Please don't be the kind of person who does damage to the other people in your life. Heavenly Father, may we take this message to heart. Protect this church. May the sweet spirit that is here continue into generations to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.